Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Welcome listeners to episode 91 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. Jeff, what was that? What, what was the, that was very strange. We've never had anything on the, on the show like that before. You mean an audio clip that we harvested from the internet that, violating copyright? I believe so. We, this is the, that's the first time we've done that. Uh, well, we harvested some other things. We had a little bit of a Seinfeld. Oh, that's right. Back in the least popular episode. Oh, oh here's, I can tell just by the tone of your voice yes, you're still angry about a, it. Can you spare a square? <laughs> that's it right. was horror vacui, yeah. right? Uh, the Dipolon vase. Yeah. Great stuff. Go back we and thought that go back would and, be huge. And, yeah, exactly. Well, you never can tell. Nobody bid on it. So what was it? It was from the Princess Bride. Ah, the Princess Bride. Right. I'm guessing that probably I would I would guess most of our listeners would probably recognize. Probably. That. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So would you call yourself a bridesmaid? You know, someone who just really loves that movie. Is that what they call fans of that? I think if, they're if, called bridesmaids. Okay. If that's the case, then no. Um, you know, it's one of those films that I mean, back in the day, I remember in high school, you know, my friends and I quoting. It's a very quotable movie, yes. right? And I think it's one of those things that even if you haven't seen the film, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. Uh, you, you killed, killed my, my father. father. Prepared to die. Right? right. And so it's it's very, it's very, it, it's kind of designed to kind of latch itself into the popular culture. Right. I, I enjoyed it. I remember watching it a few times with my friends. Yeah, that, that's Peter Cook, right? Who is talking about marriage at the beginning. There. Right. And I believe he was a, a, a British comedian. Okay. Um, and kind of made his... Uh, name on um, a radio and early British television ah, it was a huge right. influence on the Monty Python guys. Oh, really? Yes, really. So, so I believe so. Are you a bridesmaid or not? What's the? Um, I am a fan of the film, but I refuse to be called a bridesmaid. Okay. Right? right. <laughs> <laughs> am but, I a fan of but, the film? But what you about say? you? What about you? Not a great fan of the film. What's wrong with you? I don't know. If too many people like something, I don't like it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very common human trait. Is it? And so I, it makes it reminds me of like if like if you're really into a. Uh, a band right. that's up and coming, right? Like, uh, not a people a lot of, uh, that not a lot of people have heard of. Yeah, you're on the in. You're right? on the in, but once they kind of they break, you're kind yeah. of like, why am I following this anymore? Exactly. Everybody likes it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So I, I I've seen it and I've laughed, and but it's kind of like Monty Python. You know, when I was 19 or 20 and watching those in college as an undergrad, I thought this is the pinnacle of comedy. That nothing can get funnier than this. Mm-hmm. 25, 30 years later, I watch it and I think, really. You have that. It, it's been that much of a reversal for you. Yeah, yeah? I mean, okay. some of it's clever. Some of it is just so stupid. And I think, <laughs> how did I ever think this was so funny? What was wrong with me at the time? And yeah. I had a little pity on twenty-year-old me. Yeah, I got you. I think I think my my taste for the absurd. Okay. Um, what I, I had much more of a taste for it back when I was younger than, yes. than I have than I have today. But I showed the film recently to my my boys. Wait, wait. wait can yeah. I ask? Yeah. Please. Is it a film or a movie? This this is this is a movie. This is a movie because a, a film has pretensions to literary quality. Right. A movie is just like Top Gun. Yeah, exactly. Which I saw recently. Yeah. Uh, do we need to talk about that? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, you yeah. showed this film. I showed, film the, I showed this boys. movie to my boys. And, Princess Bride. Yeah. 
And they enjoyed it, but okay. they weren't, I mean, um, they weren't, you know, keeled over laughing or anything. They thought it was a good story. They yeah. wanted to find out what happened, what was right. going to happen. Um, maybe they're a little bit too young to, uh, I think, I think it's kind of aims for that late jun- adolescent junior high, you know, I would say around 17, seven, 15 to seven, 17 is maybe a little old, but I think that, I mean, that's kind of the pocket when I remember right. really enjoying this film, but, um, but that clip. I, I love that clip. Yeah, and it's very apropos of today's episode because we're talking about marriage. We are. Thank you for finally yes. tying that in. So yes. my name is Dr. David C. Noe. I'm here in Vomitorium South, which we like to refer to as the bunker because it's deep underground. Deep, yeah. Safe from the attacks of our critics and enemies with my good friend, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. And how are you doing, Jeff? I'm feeling good. I mean, I can't listen to that clip uh, without smiling. Yes. It always raises a smile. And uh, But uh, even beyond the clip, I'm feeling good tonight. Have you gotten any um, Have you gotten any fan mail about your walking program, your exercise program? Not not, not a scrap. No, your regimen? Because right. I think you already got a, a solid 12,000 steps in this morning. I did. That's, that's kind of my, that's my usual daily regimen. I like to get up early, right. walk all over downtown, and, and come back with a good you know, ten mm-hmm. to 12,000 steps in. You yeah. don't hesitate, you perambulate. I perambulate. Yes, I do. That's yes, right. Yeah. And how am I feeling? How are you feeling? Thanks for asking. <laughs> I'm doing really well. Yeah, it's been an early morning. I did some Latin tutoring this morning with uh, a friend of mine in Alabama. He's, yep. he's probably not listening. He's too disciplined a chap. But uh, we read some good 16th century Latin together, some some beautiful lines, some quibus gemitibus quam ardentibus votis, something like that, uh, groans and, and fervent prayers. It was a good time. That's a good way to start the day. That's right. Yeah, excellent. So what are we talking about today, Jeff? Well, we're, we're back knee-deep in book four of the Aeneid. Ah. And I think we're at the, in, in some ways, we're going to start with a crucial moment. That's right. Right. But this is going to be the penultimate episode of book four. I think we got one more. We do. We have three total because we're not even going to deal with the Morse Didonis uh, this time. Right? No, we're, no, we're not. We uh, put it off one more. Right. So another reason for the audience perhaps to ask, will this series on the Aeneid ever end. No, but we've gotten some nice uh, feedback uh, recently. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a woman, um, we'll give her a proper shout out at some point, but first name is Bridget. Mm-hmm. The last initial is P, and uh, she's really enjoying this Aeneid uh, series, so that's that's good news for us. That's good. No, I was a little hesitant of doing this too. deep of a dive, but um, it's personally, it's been great for me to get back into this text. Really enjoyed it. And yeah. we do have an actual legitimate shout out. Who does this go out to? This goes to the wife of, um, I think this is the first husband and wife team ever to get a consecutive shout outs. That's huge. Or, you know, not consecutive, but on the same same program. And that is uh, Yap Jacobs. Yap Jacobs, his wife. Yap. All this right. is the wife of Yap. Uh, I, we can't call her Mrs. Yap because she has her own name. What is that, Jeff? Uh, her name is Martine von Ittersum. Uh, Martine von Ittersum. Now, if I remember, are they in Scotland? They're in Scotland. That's right. And I believe it's a friend of Martine's who doesn't like our Scottish accents. Oh, okay. Well, but don't even go No, there. I won't. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, Martine teaches early modern history at the University of Dundee. And specializes, this is the most interesting specialization, Hmm. she specializes in Dutch overseas expansion in the early modern period. Hmm. Wow. That is very specific. Very specific. Especially its implications for political thought and practice. And I must say, I am so thankful that there are persons interested in such a broad range of topics and willing to specialize. Because this is obviously very, very important 
but you know who's going to do it? Well, yeah, Martine is Martine. right. She's got the interest, the skills, and so she brings a lot of this important information to light. What else do we know about Martine? Uh, she is also a book historian. Her research focuses on the social history of knowledge, including the materiality of texts, the archaeology of archives, and the history of canon formation. Mm. She's currently finishing her book on the transmission and use of the papers of Hugo Grotius. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Yes, Hugo. so Grotius or Grotius, I think is uh, how it's often pronounced, it was a Dutch scholar, mm -hmm. a remonstrant. Uh, so he had started out as a Calvinist and then he kind of uh, went in a different direction. So I don't have his exact dates, but it's, it's early to mid-17th century. Huge polymath, this guy. Okay. I mean, he just was an enormously influential and brilliant scholar, but quite controversial. So a uh, child prodigy. Um, I guess here in our script, he is described as the well-known 17th century Dutch jurist, who, of course, wrote a lot in Latin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's a good Latinist. I, I like his Latin. I'm not a fan of some of his thought. But uh, again, you know, someone's got to know Grotius, and uh, Martin is... Is the one. So you've come across him, because I know you do a lot of translating of, of Latin from that era. All the time. Yep. He is one of those guys that is quoted in all the biblical commentaries, often disapprovingly, uh, but as someone whose keen insight unearthed a lot of important observations. Very interesting. Just a real sharp fellow. We should do a, an episode on him sometime. Sound, that yeah. sounds fascinating. Well, Yap adds here at the end, says, as Martine obtained her PhD at an American university, she spent a number of years in the U.S., so she gets our jokes better than Yap does. I have to say that on the whole, then, I'm more a fan of Martine than of Yap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the needle just moved That's towards correct, Martin. Martine, because she's getting our jokes. That's right. You notice it doesn't say appreciates your jokes much better than I do, but right. simply gets them. Yes. I don't know if this is get like a catching a cold or something. Yeah. If that's the... Uh, right, right, exactly. That's how we're to understand it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I also wonder if, if either of them like uh, popcorn. I don't know, but nice segue. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you may remember that uh, their daughter also got uh, a shout out That's not right. too long ago. That's right. That's the, the, the whole Jacobs That's right. family. The family are getting their shout outs. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. So well done. But popcorn, yep. Jeff? Let's talk Let's talk a little popcorn. Okay. What yep. do you think? Um, are we, are we popcorn people? I am. I'm a popcorn person. Right. My family are popcorn people. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, one of our wonderful sponsors. Yes. Uh, Pop City Popcorn. Yes. Where are they located? They're located in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yes. And they are a specialty popcorn shop. Mm -hmm. um, and as I've, I've said on this, sh this show earlier, I was skeptical about right. all the fancy flavors and stuff yes. because I've been burned by, you know, the the hot Fleeto Chorito you know, chips with you're all the flavoring. You're losing me here. Right. You know, the, you know, you've, the, been, you've been scorched. I've been scorched. Like a, you know, like a... Uh, what's his name? Borville Edenrocker. Exactly. Who's been left in the microwave for not three and a half minutes, <laughs> but three minutes and 45 seconds. Yeah. And then you've got that nasty cloud of smoke wow. that comes billowing out of your microwave and it's, it it's awful ruins the evening it does you got that problem and you got all just kind of the fake you know cheese dust that they put yes. on all these these salty treats the jacker crack and the fatty pop that you can buy in the bag at the store no thank you no, no thank you but this stuff is the real deal it is so, um what are some of your favorite flavors i, I like the parmesan i like okay. more like the, the savory yeah um I, I, the um the the bacon the one bacon is a, cheddar bacon cheddar is a great That's one right. 
Um, my boys love the the caramel, the two-way drizzle. That's right. Uh, for your sweet tooth. The rainbow pop. Yep, the rainbow pop. Yeah, there's great stuff. They have this uh, movie theater uh, package mm-hmm. where you get the movie theater buttered popcorn and Best. all the accessories. Yeah. It's a good way to spend the evening, you know, maybe be a bridesmaid and yeah. watch Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Give it another, give it another yeah, view. Yeah, like give it another view. Later. So let's say uh, one of our loyal audience members... Mm-hmm. And let's face it, they're probably all loyal. Very. Want to score themselves some popcorn. What should they do, They Jeff? should go to popcitypopcorn.com. Check out their amazing array of, of offerings. Find the stuff you want. Type in the coupon code ANPOP20, ANPOP20, and that'll get you uh, 15% off. Your, no. No, it's more. No, what? no, no. What? The 20 indicates. Of course. They get 20% off. 20% off. It's okay. Right. It's early. Uh, 20% off their first order. That's right. So definitely worth checking out. Do it. All right, Dave, you've got our opening quote uh, this uh, morning, don't you? Yes, I do. And this is from Brooks Otis, once again, his work Virgil, A Study in Civilized Poetry, uh, 1964 from Oxford, but then reprinted uh, by the University of Oklahoma Press. This is really nice. You can pick it up as a paperback. It's a dense but really enjoyable read. This is one of the essential works. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And uh, we're also going to look at a little bit of William Anderson, The Art of the Aeneid, later in the episode. What I think are the two most important books on this poem from the 20th century. Fantastic. So this is from pages 305 and 306. And Otis writes, The passing of the empathetic and psychological initiative from Aeneas to Dido. So that's in book two. Right, the passing of the empathetic and psychological initiative from Aeneas to Dido was in itself a sign of something very wrong. And his narrative, so ironically set in the very middle of the love story, so this is the narrative of the fall of Troy in Mm -hmm. book two, in the middle of the love story makes clear what was wrong. The omens at the end of book two had marked a change in all Aeneas's ideas and expectations, a change that he could neither understand nor emotionally encompass. Hmm. The one sure pietas that Aeneas could and did understand and encompass was that toward his father Anchises. Yes. So that's solid. Yep. I, I love my dad. I reverence him. He's tradition, the past. Mm-hmm. That's that's locked in. Anchises, on the other hand, had really been converted, had felt and known that his life had been prolonged for one divine purpose. His initiative in Book Three was thus as necessary to Aeneas as his death was unnerving. Aeneas as yet had neither the experience nor the knowledge to support his new Roman pietas alone. He was still emotionally dependent on his father. Mm. But his father's death, this, but after his father's death, this dependence could mean only weakness and vulnerability. His conscience was now no match for Eros. Oh. So the death of Anchises, here is his interpretation. Yeah. The death of Anchises prepared Aeneas to fall in love with Dido. That's yeah. Otis's claim. Okay. Hence the almost immediate transition from the death of Anchises to the union with Dido in the cave. Yes. We only regain empathetic contact with Aeneas when we see him appalled at Mercury's message, which we're going to talk about today. Right. Otis continues, bewailing his fate, yet eager to do quickly what do he must. The ensuing tragedy of Dido takes place by itself while Aeneas is off planning his departure, sleeping on his ship, or sailing the high seas. He does not grasp its meaning either for Dido or for himself. Right. Right. That, that's really insightful. It's a lot of insight there. It's, so if I can, if, correct me Break if I'm wrong. Break it down for us. Well, if I could put this in kind of like almost modern like dating parlance. Okay. 
Um, I, Dido is Aeneas's rebound relationship from Anchises. Exactly. He's not ready. Right. For, for it, it, it fills a void. That's right. For him, but he doesn't understand kind of the the weight of everything uh, upon him at that moment. He has a kind of emotional immaturity. Yes. This is the Otis's point. I think you've got that exactly right. The odd part about that is. I don't think in contemporary terms, now I know anything about dating because I've been married for you know, 26 years, yeah. but um, we don't think about a rebound being from a, any kind of general emotional trauma. It's usually from another romantic relationship. Exactly, right, right. That's, that's the distinction. It's still very helpful, though, because Aeneas is emotionally devastated from the death of his father. That was his secure pietas, yep. as Otis says. Now he needs something else, and so he's he's easy prey to the passions of Dido. Right, he falls right into it, and then to um, uh, to extend it, when he leaves, as the kids say, he ghosts her. Yes, he doesn't say anything. Right, right? he just he just packs up and leaves. He right? stands there, and that's yeah. what in 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 many ways sends her completely over the edge. Right, I thought it was very insightful that Otis says here we don't reconnect with Aeneas; we only regain empathetic contact with him. When we see him appalled at Mercury's message. Mm. So he's he's passive. He's in the background for the majority of the book doing yes. almost nothing. And so you think... As you talked about in the previous episode. Correct. Right? Yeah. Uh, about whom is this epic? Is, is this about Aeneas? Well, not for a good portion of book four. Right. It's Dido's story. But Otis's point is it's necessarily Dido's story as part of Aeneas's emotional development. Right, right, right. So we were talking in the previous episode about how I think one of the, uh, the effects you know, uh, we can speculate whether Virgil, you know, intended or not, uh, of this book is to is to um, kind of um, focus the sympathy right. on Dido yes. because Aeneas kind of just lurks in the background there. Um, but from Otis's point of view, it's also kind of this necessary uh, plot point Correct. to push Aeneas towards where he needs to go. Yes. Right. So there actually is character development. Now we'll talk about this later as we approach the end of the epic, which again, you know, we is going to be 2025 or something. Exactly, right. <laughs> but we're going to look at some of the interpretive aspects, and particularly this question, does Aeneas develop as a character? Yeah. And I think the preliminary answer, thanks to Otis, is yes, mm-hmm. although not in ways that a modern audience would expect. Right. I mean, if, we, if, you're, if your benchmark is an Odysseus or an Achilles or, you know, fill in your, your, your favorite Greek hero, Aeneas is always going to frustrate you. And that too, I think maybe even uh, for Virgil is by design. Yes. Because of this notion of that he is, he's, he's um, pulled along by fate. Right. All right. So uh, we ended the last episode uh, with this um, bargain, this agreement between Juno and, and Venus. Right. Right. And so Juno wants to arrange, he, Juno wants to keep Aeneas away from Italy. Correct. Right? She wants to kind of stave off this fate as long as she can. And so sure, her plan is, well, let's, let's arrange things so that, um, Aeneas and Dido wind up together. Right. Uh, she uses the language of marriage. Yes, she's the love boat captain. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly right. We were, that's what we also uh, talked about that. And so she's um, she's Gopher. She's she's Isaac. Right. She's, she's Captain Steubing. Yeah. Uh, and Venus. Yeah. She wants him to get to Italy and gain his glory, but she's afraid he's going to die in Carthage. Right. Because he's weak. So she's willing to make this temporary agreement with G- Juno simply to protect the life of her son. Right, exactly. And it, that, one of the ironies here, it seems that Venus ultimately understands 
the machinations of fate better than Juno does. Right. And Juno kind of has her fingers in her ears as going, la, 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 la. I don't want exactly. to hear it. Exactly. And one of the funniest things that you've said, I must say, mm-hmm. was that meanwhile, Jupiter's sitting on the couch like some, you know, sleepy old uncle. Yeah. And he wakes up and says, yeah, just fig- figure it out. Right. What's the problem here? Exactly. What do I, why do I, what do I hire you people for exactly. anyway? Exactly. Right. Disinterested, distant. <laughs> Right. Where's the remote? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So um, this is uh, it, uh, Juno's plan seems to to work without a hitch. She, they're out on a what? What are they hunting in? It's, it's like a it's an aristocratic fox. It's like a fox hunt, and deer hunt, a boar fox, hunt. There's a boar. Throw in your you know quadrupedal quadrupedal <laughs> mammal. Right. Right. This is what the rich and famous do. It is. And there's a beautiful description. We we passed over it because we can't cover everything. There's a beautiful description of um, Aeneas and his men waiting at the gates of the palace. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Venus has poured all kinds of beauty over Aeneas's shoulders and head. And, you know, he's standing there godlike. And then Dido, the queen, comes out looking very glamorous. Yes. Yeah. You know, for her big moment on the hunt. And she's gorgeous and... And uh, it's a magical moment. It I'll is. just say that it is. Do you do you know um, Oscar Wilde's famous line about fox hunts? No. He described them as the inedible being chased by the unspeakable. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? That is brilliant. That's one of the funniest things I've heard. That's great. The inedible. Nobody eats a fox. <laughs> right. Being chased by the unspeakable. I wonder if he ever uh, did some some hunting himself. I I, He's I British aristocracy, right? It is, but he was so. Yeah. I mean, he was always out to the side, you know, Correct. cheekily making fun of everything. Right. right? Brilliant. Right. right. All right. So they, they wind uh, Juno arranges for, well, there's a thunderstorm, which right. separates the group. And now uh, Dido and Aeneas are alone, and they find themselves seeking shelter in a cave. Backing into this cave. So you want right. to read some Latin I would for us? love to. This is line 165. Spe lun cam di do duc set Trojanus e andem, de veniunt primetelus et pronuba juno. Dant signum foseir regneset conscius aether, conubi isc sumo cululardrunt vertica nymphae, illadies primus leti primusquem alordrum, causa fuit nequinim specie famavem ovetur, neciam purtivum dido meditatur amordrum, conugium vocat, hoc praetexit nomine cupam. Nicely done. Thank you. It's great stuff in here. Great stuff. Do you want me to do Lombardo's translation before we talk a little bit about some of the particulars of the Latin? Yes, I think that'd be good. Okay. So Lombardo uh, translates this uh, as such. And Dido and the Trojan leader make their way to the same cave. Earth herself and bridal Juno give the signal. Fires flash in the sky, witness to their nuptials, and the nymphs wail high on the mountaintop. That day was the first cause of calamity and of death to come. For no longer is Dido swayed by appearances or her good name. No more does she contemplate a secret love. She calls it marriage, and with that word she cloaks her sin. Uh, that is an excellent translation. That's, that's beautiful. It's really nicely done, Stan. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about the I Latin do. here? I do, yes. So line 165, Spelum cam dido, dido dux et trionise andem. This line has Spelum cam at the beginning which our listeners can probably recognize as a word that means cave. Mm-hmm. The guy that goes down into the cave. The spelunker. Spelunker, right. Yep. So spelunkam is cave. Now, at the opposite end of the line is the adjective eondem, which means same. So we've got the marker for cave at the beginning of the line, the marker for cave at the end of the line. See how it forms a cave? And what do we find right in the middle? We find Dido and the 
the Trojan. That's right. Yeah. Dido dukes at Troyanus. The other really interesting thing about this is the placement of this word dukes, right? So now dukes means the leader or the commander, but it's a common noun, which means it could be either feminine or masculine, depending on to whom it refers. Yeah. But the way that Virgil has put together this gorgeous line is such that the word dukes is right between Dido and the adjective for Aeneas, namely Troyanus. Yeah. So we can't tell whether he is saying Dido, the leader, or whether he's saying Dido and the Trojan leader. Right. We can't tell which marker is Di- is a dukes going with. Do you think that you know Evie, he puts um, you know, dukes right after Dido? That's right. Do you think that's even kind of a subtle uh, Absolutely. nudge to say that it's closer to, it's it's more her? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, 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 he's deliberately making it ambiguous. And the name of this figure of speech is called uh, apokoinu, which means in a common spot. So you can put an adjective or some other marker between two nouns. Yeah. And the reader cannot tell which is it modifying, which is it going with. And uh, this is one, an, another element of uh, Virgil's brilliance. It is, it is, it is brilliant. Yeah. Um, a, a couple questions here. Yes. I'm going to kind of sit in the in the seat of a, a Latin student. Okay. I can I can hear like one of my students asking this. Okay. So you have this brilliant line where you have this speluncum aandum, like literally putting the words between them yes. in, a, in a cave. Iconic word order, right. where the order of the words paints the picture you're supposed to get in your mind. Exactly. Now, uh, you know, back in antiquity, we right. know that. Um, Broadly speaking, very few people were literate. Right. And so probably the, the, the way that most people kind of digested the Aeneid was hearing it perform. Yes. yes. So my, my question, I can hear one of my students saying this, that's brilliant, but would somebody hearing that and then another line immediately following, yeah. would they have gotten that? Well, I think so. You think so? Yes, and here's, here's my explanation. Okay. You're right. 10% maybe at max were literate, only the highest portion of the society, a 10% and mostly male. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were women who read, but... It was a small fragment. Uh, but great art, you don't have to get it all at once. Mm. There's so much in this line to enjoy. The basic meaning, Dido and the Trojan leader were in the same cave. Right? Yeah. They, they rendezvoused, they, how do you say it, bivouacked? Did they bivouac in the same cave? <laughs> <laughs> That's Dewey Unt. Yeah. In the same cave. Yeah. So the meaning there, oh, this is interesting. Romance is going to ensue. You don't have to notice Speluncamayandem bracketing the line to appreciate it. But if you do, then there's another level. You also don't have to get the third thing, which is that Dukes could go with either Dido or Troyanus. Mm-hmm. But if you do, there's another element of pleasure, uh, aesthetic interest. But then there's also just the simple alliteration, Dido Dukes. That's going to get your attention. Right. So I would say we should think about this in the same way that we might listen to a song. Mm-hmm. We might listen to, uh, we might watch a movie or read a book. Uh, there's one song I really like. It's an instrumental guitar piece. It's called uh, Can't Find the Words. Um, and I've listened to that song maybe 500 times because I just love the melody. I just last week noticed some additional musical elements, like a little bit of percussion placed over here yeah. you know, in, on one side. Yeah. Uh, there's a spot where at, at the, the climax of the melody line, there's a bell, you know, ting, that's hit just at the right time. Yes. You don't have to appreciate all of something at once in order to still find it, you know, aesthetically riveting and ex- yeah. explosive. Okay. You must have the same kind oh, of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. No, it's, uh, uh, exactly. And, and it's, it also reminds us why we, uh, 
hearing the story again and again and again right is this is a story worth retelling this is a song worth re-listening to that's right, right. So, like, it's with, packed with music if you put on a, a, a decent pair of headphones right and you close your eyes right you're gonna notice all kinds of new things that's correct it. and that's part of the, the beauty of it little accidental notes right. slight little bends that you hadn't heard before right this so al- this also reminds me. You know, we're both fans of The Simpsons, right? And there was one sh- uh, show with Professor Frank. Yes, he was handling some kind of toy, right? And all the kids were reaching for it. They wanted, it, and he says, "You'll get it when you reach it, and on all the levels I do." <laughs> <laughs> so Rubik's cube or something, right? Right. So t- to answer the specific question, mm-hmm. not every audience member would have caught all the elements of sophisticated storytelling in this line. Yeah, but they don't have to all catch it in order for it to be successful. Gotcha. And, you know, the most educated, well, maybe that's not the right word, the most perceptive individual is going to be blown away. Right. And the least perceptive individual is still going to enjoy it. Right. And the people who, who get it on the higher level then can kind of you know, uh, look down upon the people. Who exactly. Right? <laughs> or explain it to them. There you go. That's yeah. much more charitable. And that's what great art is, right? It hits on multiple levels. Right. Exactly. All right. So let's, um, you want to talk a little bit about um, uh, Dido's guilt? Well, there's one other item here in this quote that I think we really need to pay attention to. Oh, in the, in the Latin, you want to look at it? Uh, yes. Okay. And that's uh, line 169. Yeah, please. Illidies primus leti primusque malordrum, which uh, Lombardo takes as, um, that day was the first cause of calamity and of death. Yeah. I think this would have struck the audience, as it strikes me, as very powerful. Um, what is one of the happiest days in a person's life? It's your, uh, your wedding day, Your right? wedding day, yeah. right. You know, the, the bride has never looked more lovely. The groom has never been, you know, more anxious, <laughs> uh, you know, f- filled with uh, excitement and uncertainty. Yes. Where, where am I supposed to stand? What am I supposed to do? Exactly. You know, it's just, it's, it's a really, it's a magical day in some ways, right. right? And so the contrast between that and this line, that day was the first cause of death and destruction. That's shocking. Yeah. I would also uh, uh, point out that, well, in these first um, you know, three, four books that we've read, there's lots of talk about the future. There's lots of talk about you know, what's going to happen. There's lots of talk about you know, what has to happen in, in Italy as fate demands. But this is, I think, a rare moment where we have Virgil, uh, kind of the omniscient narrator, kind of break in. And there's not a prophecy that says, oh, and, you know, Dido's fate will be sealed. Right. No, it's Virgil himself kind of coming and saying, and this was kind of the... the That's it. This is the thing that kind of led to this calamity. Mm. And I thought that, I think that too would probably set the audience kind of back on their heels. Because I, I, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, Virgil doesn't do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. He, he leaves kind of the predicative stuff uh, to an oracle, to a prophet, to, right. a, to a prophetess or something like that. Right. So even kind of the, the quality of the of the of the language here and the narrative is is, is odd. Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah and it, it reminds me of the fact that perhaps maybe if a person has had a very unhappy marriage, you know, which must be some of our listeners, I don't know, mm-hmm. hopefully not, but um, they, might, they might appreciate this a little bit more, right? Yeah. Because the contrast between everyone's looking their best, everything's excitement and balloons and happiness, but there's some hidden sorrow that's yet to emerge from this disastrous relationship, right? And you know that's that's got to be um, that's got to be shocking. Sure, sure. I think I think everybody looks back on. I mean, not even you know, um, you know failed marriages, but you know relationships that don't work out. You're, you're always looking back, like you know, was it that moment exactly? Right? You know, yeah. Or I should have done X, Y, or Z. Right. right. It's just nature of regret, of kind course. of. Of so course. I've taken jobs that you know didn't go the way I intended, and you th- think back on them. If you're a reflective person, you try to figure out. 
So which which was the step? You yes. Know, that, that turned out to be really fateful, but I didn't realize it at the time, mm -hmm. you know, where it was leading. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's always a surprising revelation. Yes, yes, indeed. So, um, and then the, the lines go on that uh, Virgil tells us that Dido basically, you know, all of her hesitation, yes. all of her worries about her reputation, they're gone. She's all in. That's right. No more does she contemplate a secret love. She calls it marriage. That's very interesting. Aeneas doesn't. She calls it marriage, and with that word, she cloaks her sin. The her word sin. is kulpam, kulpam. her yep. guilt. She covers over her guilt. This is the guilt of the broken uh, promise to her dead husband, Sicaeus. Right. She covers it up with this name, marriage. Right. So I think with that line, Virgil kind of, he, 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 in terms of judgment, he's kind of saying, no, this this is not a marriage. This is just uh, this is a, this is a sham. It is. Um, yep. Dido's just simply using this as an excuse for um, kind of going against her vows. That's right. Yeah, Jeff, I think we should bring in here the quote from William Anderson, uh, "The Art of the Aeneid," nineteen sixty nine, Prentice Hall. Uh, could you read this? This is page fifty. Yes. Uh, so Anderson writes: There is an old controversy about Dido's guilt in all this, especially in the nineteenth century, when marriage was often talked about, if not entirely treated as something sacred. Commentators rather glibly explain Dido's tragedy in terms of her perjured oath toward her first husband, Sicaeus. We now recognize that such a view is neither realistic nor even consistent with ancient practices. Although dramatic characters frequently assert, as their mates are dying, that they will never marry, uh, and Virgil knew the never motif. Never re remarry. Remarry. Right. It reminds me of, of Alcestis, right? Yes. And Virgil knew the motif well. Remarriage obviously did happen both in myth and normal Greek and Roman life. To remarry is both natural and politically astute, as Anna, Dido's sister, correctly argues. So Aeneas will remarry when he arrives in Italy, uh, patently without the slightest stain on his reputation. The crucial fact is not that Dido broke her faith to Sicius, but that she entered into a pseudo-marriage which destroyed her honor. Despite all the apparent paraphernalia of Roman marriage ritual assembled by deluded Juno, the whole cave episode amounts to a mere travesty a parody in which Dido gives herself unreservedly without asking for the protection of conventional marriage arrangements, and Aeneid gives himself with unspoken reservations. Dido certainly wins our sympathy for her commitment. At the same time, we must recognize why Virgil labels this passion with destructive metaphors, because its irrational features lead Dido to disregard her total range of responsibilities as well as those of Aeneas, and so to bring upon herself the consequences of an unreal marriage, quote-unquote. That in the highest has that in the highest sense is tragic guilt. Yes, oh, that's brilliant. So, what do you make of that? That's really interesting I, because um, when I read when I read this when I read this now, one of my first instinct is to uh, in thinking about Dido's guilt is oh she broke her vow to Zacchaeus. Right. And so I love how Anderson redirects that and says no, you know, that's an, not really the issue. That's not really the issue, you know, particularly from an ancient uh, perspective. And I like that too, kind of contextualize it in terms of how kind of a 19th century audience would Right. Be. And I would even argue, even to many readers today, 20th oh, yes. and 21st century, would also kind of read this through the lens of kind of the sanctity of marriage. Absolutely. Right? Right? Yes. There's a lot of emotional weight that's uh, freighted onto a marriage. Yes. I would say irrespective of one's religious commitments, cultural commitments, marriage is pretty important. Yeah. Um, it's, it's given a lot of significance. So Anderson says... It's not that she broke her vow to Sicaeus, it's that it's a sham marriage. Yes. And the two important points he identifies is Dido enters into it 
without any uh, clear commitment on the part of Aeneas, no promises, mm-hmm. and Aeneas enters into it with all kinds of unspoken reservations. Right, right, right. So right. how is this a real marriage? Right, yeah. Uh, and then I thought the contrast with when Aeneas arrives in Italy, he, he's ready to remarry Lavinia and no qualms whatsoever. And I think maybe one of the ways people misread this is to say, well, that's because he's a man and she's a woman. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a superficial analysis because uh, what I've learned about Roman marriage in the custom of Roman law uh, is that some of the obligations were equally shared. It's, it's not just that hmm. the man had more freedom and the woman was kind of bound. It's a little more equitable than you might think. Right, right. Yeah, certainly in terms of um, like a, uh, a noble woman, in terms of like what a domina was expected Correct. to do, running a household right. was like running a small army. That's right. Yeah. And there were a lot of contractual obligations that went into a marriage. It wasn't just man picks the woman, purchases her from the father, and it's a done deal. Exactly. Well, Dave, speaking of sham marriages, it's time for the ads. All right. <laughs> This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you, good folks, by the people at Racial Coffee of Portland, Oregon. Jeff, what do you think about your Racial 8? You graduated recently. I did. Well, you, let me tell you, uh, this morning, as I was off on my walk, you know, getting my 12,000 steps in. Bragging again, yeah, exactly. are we? Right. And as I kind of entered into that last mile. Yes. It, you, know, it's, uh, you know, it's just walking, but um, up and down a lot of hills, you know, you're, yeah. you're ready for it to be done. Okay. And the, the, the thought that kind of kept me going for that last stretch was I had my um my filter and my grounds ready to go in my in my ratio eight and all i had to do come in is come inside hit the button um so you dragged yourself through the front door yes. crawling on your hands and knees exactly right your feet bloody stumps of twelve thousand stumpery yes and you reached up to the counter hand trembling yes and yes. you had to go through many many steps to have delicious perfect coffee well, right well no that's where you're wrong okay uh, in terms of getting things going it was one step i pushed a button right and right. did you just push it with your nose cuz you couldn't you know lift your arm it was my my trembling index finger got okay. the job done and and then what it was like a 30 to 45 minute process before delicious coffee was delivered into the hand blown borosilicate glass carafe well you're right about the carafe part okay. but um, it was very simple it goes through basically three stages you got your bloom in which all the nasty CO2 is off-gassed. There we right? go. Exactly. I don't even know what, I want to know where it goes. I, I don't. I don't care. It's gone. Okay. And then what happened? Um, well, then it goes through uh, the second phase, which is the brew, which is arguably the most important because that's where the the, the boiling hot water comes down uh, through the grounds and into the into the hand-blown uh, carafe. And what were you doing during this stage? I w- rubbing your sore feet? I was. I was kind of. Go- I had gone fetal on the couch. Okay. Yeah, kind of, and <laughs> mentally preparing myself for the for return to the kitchen. Okay. Um, but before you know it, um, it enters that third stage. It's ready. The ready stage. Yeah. Then you you take it off, mm-hmm. but it's already. Uh, can you can you decant it into um, a kind of a heavy? Container that will keep it nice and warm. You can if, right. you, if, you, if you want to, because right? you still have the uh, carafe from the ratio six, right. right? Exactly. So if my dear wife is still sleeping, I want coffee now, but I want to let her sleep for a while. I will use that um, that carafe from the six uh, to I, to keep it warm for hours. Yeah, you don't want to give her the the tepid, lukewarm after coffees. No, it's a terrible way to That's start cruel. the day. That's cruel. Yeah, right. exactly. So yeah, all kinds of options here. So I loved I loved my six. Um, I love the look of the eight. It's a yeah. it's a beautiful. It's a it's a work of art. You have the eight. I do. Yeah. Yes, I'm really enjoying it. I had several cups this morning. Um, I didn't think ahead that far. I had that early morning tutoring obligation, so yes. I had to grind the beans at the last minute. But that kept it fresh. Yeah. I pushed the button, went to take care of my other items. I came back, 
You don't have to watch this. You don't have to look over it. You don't have to drive to Bar Stucks or one of those places. No. And wait in the line, drive through to get inferior coffee. Ratio does it all. It does it all. And um, it, it's a great machine. Um, these things are, are works of art. So listeners, uh, check out these these things at ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Um, we got a couple of coupon codes to, yes, we do. to advertise. Um, so for, for July. Yes, only a couple days left. Right. You're um, going to want to enter in. A-N-C-O-A-4. A-4. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you're listening to this in August. It's A N C O. 7C. 7C. 7 Charlie. Yes. Right? And that will get them what? It'll yeah. get them 15% off either the 6 or the 8. Yes. So ANCOA4 for July. That's a hit. And ANCO7C for August. Yeah. You sank my coffee maker. <laughs> Very nice. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Uh, in business now for uh, pretty much exactly 50 years now. Yes, they started in 1972. 72. They've got offices in Indianapolis and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. Uh, we love these guys. They've been with us from the very beginning of this Incredible. podcast. Incredible. They, they took a dice roll on, on two schmucks like a us. A huge risk. Yep. That's right. So we dialed them up in the, I think it was the fall of 2020. Yes. As, uh, what's that guy's name? What? Who? Not, not Barbara Walters, but what was the co-host, you know, the guy... What's his name? I don't know. Who, I have no on idea. On 2020, catch I, up here. Um, I never Hugh watched. something. Was it, are you talking about Ted Koppel? Hugh Downs. No, Hugh, it, was, it was Hugh, Hugh Downs. Okay, Hugh Downs, right. It was the fall of 2020. <laughs> gotcha. And, and we, we dialed them up and said, look, we're doing this podcast. Yeah. And do you guys support the classics? Yeah. And they said, of course, well, of course we do. Of course we do, but uh, who are you? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, they were they were amazingly on board uh, really quickly. They That's loved, right. They loved the idea of what we wanted to do. And here they are still with us. Well, back then we were getting, what, one, two downloads per episode? Right. And they said, yeah, we'll take a risk. Sure, why not? And uh, boy, have they come through. They have come through. And this is a great company. Um, check out their vast offerings. They they do support the classics, but they have um, they have their fingers in all kinds of different areas of, of, of academia. Latin uh, American studies, uh, East Asian studies. Religious studies. Yes, uh, Norse studies. They uh, Another thing we love about them is they will have... Um, uh, the same text by different translators. That's right. So even options within kind of you know, one work of, of literature. Yep. So for the Aeneid, we've got Lombardo. We're going to read from Len Krizak, mm-hmm. his uh, rhyming translation of the Aeneid pretty soon. Yep. For Ovid, we had Lombardo and Ambrose. Yeah. So it's great stuff. It's great stuff. So um, go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Find your find your uh, um, your favorite text. Drop them in the box and type in the coupon code AN two zero two two, and that gets you two great things: twenty percent off your entire order and free shipping. Yes, it's incredible. Just yesterday, I had someone sign up for my LLPSI course, the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Yeah, the book's published by Hans Orberg. And I said, look, you, you can get it from that river-based emporium. What is it? it says uh, Mississippi.com. Yeah, exactly. Not, Huds- Hudson.com. Nile.com. Well, I, I can't, can't, I can't, no, I can't really place it. Flatriver.com. Yeah. Uh, but I said, you can do it there. But if you go to Hackett, you can get the hardcover of this gorgeous book, 20% off. And she jumped on it because why, why would you pass it up? Why would you not do this? Right. So, um, yeah, listen, don't hesitate. Coupon code AN2022. Check it out. All right, Jeff. So as we get back into this, we're mm-hmm. going to take a little bit of a detour, yes. uh, which is nevertheless germane to the topic. Yep. 
and that's going to be the subject of Roman law. Right. So um, you found this. Uh, you found. This, did you have a, a copy of the the Yale Law Journal just in, on your shelves in the in the house? Yeah, I keep yeah. it. I keep it next to you know my collection of Spider Man comic books. Yes, but this, this comes from an article uh, from back in the day. Yes, nineteen oh seven. Nineteen oh seven. But um, uh, some information on marriage uh, contracts in Roman law, which I think is a great supplement to what we just heard from William Anderson. That's right. right. So the title is Marriage in Roman Law. I love those descriptive, robust titles. <laughs> yes. You know exactly what you're getting. Marriage in Roman Law. The authors are Andrew Birkin, Charles Sherman, and Emile Stuckart. So this came out, as you said, in the Yale Law Journal, March 1907. Wow. And uh, it's available in the public domain. Okay. And so, what is uh, what? I mean, what caught your attention about this this article uh, in terms of you know, how does this relate to the uh, what we're talking about in the Aeneid? Well, I thought it was an excellent description of some of the accessory elements that go into making a Roman marriage. Mm. Oftentimes, if you're reading the Aeneid, as I was reading it for the first time, you know, many years ago, I had no knowledge of the context in which this is placed. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Roman people got married. Uh, there was an exchange of goods and names and so forth. But beyond that, I had no real clear thinking about what it was. Right, right. So as I've learned more, uh, this is kind of crystallized. So the article starts out like this. Monogamy was, among the Romans, a traditional custom ordained by the positive law. Uh, in Roman law, marriage is a status created by a simple private agreement. So this is reminiscent of what happens in the cave, right? right? Mm-hmm. It's a status created by a simple Private agreement. Okay, so far, so good. Its validity results from this understanding and is absolutely independent of the betrothal, which ordinarily precedes a physical cohabitation, the festivities, the religious ceremony by which it may be accompanied. It is finally independent of any settlement which confirms the pecuniary terms, you know, the money relations, of the union and serves as its evidence. Okay. So to summarize thus far, marriage is a private agreement. Mm-hmm. It comes before all of the accessory things that are attached to it. Right. Money and contracts and so forth. Yes. But here's where it gets more interesting. The authors say, however, according to the opinion of many authors, Roman marriage, even of the last period, was never formed simply by the mere exchange of consents. So in the cave, we have consent of some sort. Right. Between the two individuals, Aeneas and Dido. It presupposed, marriage presupposed, a mode of living characterized by public acts of various kinds. All right, so the authors are, are, are to relate this to the Aeneid, is uh, they're saying that simply uh, because of what happened in the cave, um, Aeneas and Dido consenting to each other, that does not make it a marriage. That's right. In, in any shape or form. That, uh, no Roman would have recognized it as such. That's right. That's a necessary condition. That's mm-hmm. the starting point. Will you marry me? Yes, I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the necessary condition, but it's not sufficient. There's right. a lot more that goes into it. Right. And why this is interesting for Aeneas and Dido is because of all persons in Roman history and culture, they are the least private of all individuals. Yeah. They're not like you or I getting married. They are representatives of their respective nations. Right. So what they really did in the cave was highly irresponsible from a, a social perspective right and uh, in, in many ways a kind of uh, an insult to their to their their peoples that's right right so uh, the, as leaders they have an obligation uh, to be as public about something like this as possible and that's exactly the opposite of what they did that's right yeah so to go on on the on the second page of this article on the other side the authors say according to the French jurist Ortolan, Roman marriage ranks amongst the real contracts 
it has no existence if not accompanied by a traditio. Now, the traditio is the, uh, the tradition or the custom of handing over and exchanging certain kinds of things that are accessory to the marriage, as I've been saying. Mm -hmm. Then arose in Roman law, as in all similar systems, the difficulty. How to distinguish marriage from an irregular union in its two forms of concubinatus and mere concubinage. In other words, people living together doesn't constitute a marriage, uh, but they have to have some kind of formality to it. So at best, what uh, Aeneas and Dido were doing, here I'm interpreting, Aeneas and Dido were doing is they're entering into an informal kind of love match. Yes. It's not really a marriage, despite, as Anderson told us, all of the Juno stuff and the torches and the trumpets. Right, exactly. All the... All the uh, um uh, the, all the light, all the light show and, and the, the flummery does not make a, a does not make a marriage. That's right. right. Attaching the balloons to the car and putting streamers around and putting shaving cream on the windshield right. and all the other stuff that happens. So we all recognize that as kind of wedding uh, or marriage adjacent. It's a wedding esque. It's wedding esque, but it, it's not. It's not a marriage. That's right. right. So the last little quote here. The answer to this, you know, this difficulty, how to distinguish a true from a false marriage, mm -hmm. was that marriage implied the intention of the husband to have a legal wife, to raise her to his rank, to make her his equal, and the corresponding intent of the wife. This was called the affectio maritalis. Hmm. So was explained the famous Roman definition of marriage, which shows how much the Roman wife shares the religious and civil status of her husband. So it's an individual vitae consuetudo, that is an indivisible custom of living. It's a consortium omnis vitae, a joining together of one's whole life, it's a divini atque humani juris communicatio. It's a sharing of divine and human right or rank. Interesting. So here's where Aeneas and Dido really break down. Hmm. They can't do these kinds of things in part because they represent different cultures. Right. You right. can't join them together. He's got a predetermined fate, and now he's trying to marry this woman who's headed in a completely different direction. Exactly. It's a sham. It's a sham, and it, it, it cannot ever work. Right. Yeah. So the problem here, uh, or what compounds the problem, is that fama or rumor gets involved. Yes. And the, it, it quickly, whatever kind of story that Aeneas and Dido uh, wanted to kind of control is quickly out of their control, and suddenly uh, the word is spreading like fire. It reminds me of another, another famous quote, I think it's attributed to Mark Twain, is that it says that um, rumor can make its way around the world before truth gets its pants on, yeah, something like that. That's a good one. Right. And so um, this is becoming this is becoming a... Um, yeah, I, this is a fire that they cannot put out. Exactly. It's yeah. blown way out of proportion. Right. Do you want to read some Latin here? Yes, I would like to. This yep. is line 173. Okay. Extemplo libiae magnasit fama per urbes. There's that word fama. Fama malum qua non aliud velocius ulum. Mobilitate viget vir ris quad quirit eundo. Parvimetu primo maxe sat tolit in ardras. Ingreditur quesalat caput inter nubila condit. Very nicely done. Thank you. And so, uh, let me uh, read uh, Cresac's uh, translation. Yes, let's here. hear that, so, please. I'll uh, translate uh, the Latin Dave just read in a little bit more as well. Rumor tears through Libya's biggest towns, dread rumor, than which there's no evil faster. Speed quick feeding on it, though unsure at first, adds fuel as rumor races so, that just a hint of gossip wafts her as she flies. She stands in dirt, her head hidden in the murky skies. The gods provoked our mother earth to rage, some say such that she bore this last for Coeus and to play, the role of the sister to Enceladus, huge beast, wing swift and fast afoot, her countless eyes at least, as numerous as her plumes and wonders to relate, 
as many tongues and mouths and ears that prick up straight. She flies by night through gloom between the earth and sky, screeching she never sleeps or shuts one searchlight eye. When morning comes, she sits her watch on roofs or high upon the city's towers. Her looks can terrify. Sometimes she clings to lies. Sometimes she tells what's true. Yeah. That's a great. Yes. Yeah. And nice job, uh, Mr. Krizak. Nice yep. translation. That's there. another one. I, again, always very skeptical about kind of rhyming translations yes. of you know, dactylic example or whatever. Right. The meter. Um, it's hard to do well. There's no doubt. It's hard to do well, but that's fun to read. Yes. If you get it right, it's brilliant. It's fun to read. Kind of reminds me some of the imagery he uses there is, is uh, um, like the Eye of Sauron. Oh, yeah. Always kind of seeing like the searchlight, you know, as, sure. as, as Peter Jackson imagined it, kind of this, this laser beam coming out. And I thought that was good. Switching around the world. Yeah. Uh, a good representation by Jackson. Yeah. And of course, Tolkien influenced by the epic tradition. Without a doubt. Definitely, though writing in prose for the most part. So where does rumor go then as she flies along with all those mouths and tongues under her wings? and Right. Um, Virgil tells us that it lands uh, upon a certain Yarbus. Yes. And we also learned some interesting information here is that uh, Dido has been pursued. Yes. Um, by many of these local kings, right? They see, uh, they kind of recognize a good thing when they when they see it, and they say this might be a good wagon to, to hitch to. Right. Um, but we learned, of course, that um, she's turned them all down. Yes. Yeah, so last time we referred to her as a reverse Penelope. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I was thinking about that and wondering, is that apt? And I decided after a week of contemplation, it is. It is apt. It is apt. Here's how. Penelope ought to have gotten married by all rights, but she didn't want to. She refused to. Mm-hmm. Dido should not get married by all rights, but she wants to. She wants to. That's where it's the opposite. Yeah, excellent. Good. So our instincts on that were correct. Of course. Yeah, so thank you for explaining it and, <laughs> and landing it on solid footing. So who is Yarbas? He's a, he's a local ruler. Uh, he's a, a Libyan, I think. African chieftain. Yes. That's right. And uh, he's one of these guys uh, whose advances Dido has spurned. He's a son of Jupiter. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. yes, he's a king in his own right. He's no uh, mean catch. He's right. the real deal. Right, exactly. So he's thinking... Um, this schmo, right? Like you know, she's going off with this guy. Washed up on the shore. You're using a lot of li- uh, a lot of Yiddish this week. Am I? Schmuck, I, schmo. I am. What's I, next? I, I, I have no. I, it's I, getting I, a little kitschy in here. I think I've exhausted my Yiddish. Actually, uh, maybe you have. Yeah. Don't get verklempt. <laughs> there you go. So he's he's not happy, he, and so he goes straight to Dad. Right. That's to, right. To Jupiter and says, you know, you know, why does why does this guy get to win the prize? Yeah. Haven't yeah. we done all the correct rituals? Right. What's the breakdown here in religion is atrocious. Right. In the in the in, again in the framework of of, uh, of the books that we've read and talked about so far. Being religiously correct is paramount. It gets you, right? you, you, you what you, you want. You do all the sacrifices. You you please all the gods. And Yarbus, in, in many ways, uh, from what we've read in the Aeneid, he's got a good case. That's right. Like, I've done everything right. Yes, he refers to Aeneas as a, quote, Paris with his crew of eunuchs. <laughs> uh, there's some... That's some, what do we call this? Is that trash talk? That is serious trash talk. That, that is. That's a great insult, though. Yes, right. because Paris with your crew of your eunuch posse right. traipsing around Carthage. Who is this guy, That's, right? Compares him to the guy who you know who uh, came to the wedding at uh, in Sparta and ran off with Helen. That's right. right. So here is the big temptation for Aeneas. Is he going to behave like Paris, yeah. who is his cousin, his first cousin as the son of Priam? Right. Uh, but, you know, not a good model for a hero no. in any sense. And that's where Aeneas is breaking down, right? And so uh, Jupiter again, kind of, kind of late to the game, right? Just kind of you know, blinking his eyes. Wait, wait, what, what's happening? Sleepy uncle. What's what's going on? And he uh, says, okay, uh, you know, okay, take care of it. You know, he goes, Mercury, get over here, right? Um, 
I got a message to send. Go, will you please just straighten this this stupid stuff out? Yes. Tell okay. Aeneas, uh, this is his fate. He does not belong here. It's time to move on to Italy. Get going already. All right. And should remind the audience, um, as we've covered, how many times has this fate of you are going to Italy been spoken? And in book three, it's it's like four or five times. Yes, and it's in book one, it's in, in the promise that uh, Jupiter makes to Venus when right. she complains, the Oli Sobridane's line. Yeah. It, it's been repeated many, many times. Because, and Aeneas has heard it in the narrative many, many times himself. So the only reason, if we take an Anderson's uh, interpretation, no, sorry, we take uh, Brooks Otis, Otis interpretation, the only reason Aeneas could be so forgetful, devastated by the death of his father. Yeah. He's run out of emotional strength He's very vulnerable to the kind of security and comfort that Dido offers. And I, again, I really like that interpretation. I do too. And I think this, this is, I think this is one of the places where Virgil um, improves upon Homer, right? I, I don't think we see like in Odysseus uh, a lot of emotional development, no. so to speak, right? He's well, he, he steps onto the stage fully formed, fully formed, right? But I, I think in terms of a character whose emotions and life situations uh, um, that, that a, a reader or listener could relate to, I think Virgil has it over Homer. Yes. Right? So I could say, as I think about it, Odysseus throughout, this, throughout the epic becomes more of who he already was. He becomes more crafty, more clever, more skilled, a better liar. Hmm. Whereas Aeneas goes through some actual changes. Right. Yeah, no, I think, that, I think that's true, but they're, they're subtle. They're subtle changes. Yes. Right? At least early on. We'll, again, we'll see where this goes. But I think there's also kind of this sense that you know, we've talked about, I think I've complained a little bit about the, kind of the passivity of Aeneas. Right. But in terms of like reader, listener response, he's kind of a blank slate that you can project mm-hmm. yourself onto, right? In a way that I think you can't with an Achilles or an Odysseus. Right. right? So as we start to think about wrapping up here, we need to yeah. look at uh, Mercury suiting up for his task. Yeah, this is these are just great lines here. They are. Yeah. And it, I think this is, a, again, part of an, Virgil's brilliance is it, not everything in the story has to drive the story. Yeah. S- some of it is just happy descriptions. Yeah. You know, uh, poetic, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, virtuosity. Yeah, for its own sake. Yes, the yeah. beauty of the description. So I'd like to read just a couple lines of Latin, and then maybe you can give us the Lombardo translation. I will. Okay. Dixerat illa patris magni parere parabat, imperiet primum pedibus talardri enectit, Ardre aquae subli malisi vai quota supra, celter dram rapido pariter cum flamina portant. Very nicely done. Thank you. I like how that begins, just dixerat, plu perfect there. That's right. right. He had spoken. Dixerat, yes. Yeah. It's a it's an echo of, uh, you know, uh, Homer's Greek in many spots where so he spoke, that was it. Right. It kind of almost reminds me of like a, a thus saith the Lord. There right? you go. Exactly. It's a, it's a, um, the end of something and the beginning of something new. Um, Lombardo translates uh, this and beyond. Jupiter had spoken, and his son prepared to fulfill his commands. He bound on his feet the golden sandals whose wings carry him over landscape and, and seascape in a blur of wind. Then he took the wand he uses to summon pale ghosts from Orcus, or send them down to Tartarus's gloom. The same wand he uses to charm mortals to sleep and make sleepers awake and unseal the dead's eyelids. Holding this wand, he now rides the wind, sailing through the thunderheads as he flies along. He makes out the summit and steep slopes of Atlas, who shoulders the sky. His pine-clad head is forever dark with clouds and beaten by storms. Snow mantles his shoulders, and icy streams drip from his frozen gray beard. Mercury glided to a halt here, poised in the air, and then gathered himself for a dive to the sea, where he skimmed the waves like a cormorant. 
that patrols a broken shoreline hunting for fish. That's really That's nice. so brilliantly done. visual. That, I mean, the last part is so cin- cinematic. Can't you just yes. see him just kind of skimming along the water? Yeah, like a cormorant it's, trying to pick up a fish yes. or a pelican. That's it's so great. And I love the way that the description of Atlas is snuck into the description of Mercury. Right? Yeah. It's embedded there so subtly and, uh, and accurately. Right. And I think it's also kind of very interesting. I, I don't know quite wholly what to make of it is that um, he doesn't really dwell on Mercury's role as a messenger god, but rather he he's kind of he deliberates on his role as the psychopomp. That's right. right. So this he is the one who can uh, send people you know down to the shades you know, or bring them back. You know he yes. he can he has the that control over kind of that knife edge of life and death. That's right. And I think that adds to the seriousness of right. of the of the message he's about to deliver. Yes, because Aeneas is on the knife's edge in yeah. terms of which way is he going to fall. All of that is introduced by just mentioning the fact that he holds the staff, the the Caracas. Mm-hmm. He's got that. He's got the the sandals. He's got the staff, and this is what the staff allows him to do. So one of the things I always liked about about uh, Mercury slash Hermes is that as an action figure, he had all these things like exactly. you know, that would be sold separately. Oh, right? exactly. Right? exactly. You got the you got the, the, the your basic Mercury, but you right. got to get the hat, the accessories. The, the would, he, would he have a button in the middle of his back that when you push it, his arm would go he, up he, with the he, with the rod? Exactly. He kind of waved the Caducaeus around, and right? maybe the the. Um, Wings on his feet would, would, would flutter. Flat. Exactly, a bit. exactly right. Yeah, but you'd have to invest a lot of money to get all those pieces. Probably. Right? <laughs> Maybe when ad nauseum releases its uh, action figure, you know, line. line right. Yeah. We've got Winkle with the massively <laughs> developed quadriceps, twelve thousand steps, stalking around <laughs> um, to his ratio six. I wouldn't wish that on my worst. No. Enemy. Okay. <laughs> right. So where does Mercury find Aeneas when he finally gets down there? Okay, so Aeneas, okay, he's so deluded, right? So he finds him. Um, Building Dido City. Remember that you know when, what? what you know once Dido had kind of fallen for Aeneas, we learned that um, all the work that she had been doing stopped, kind of ground to a halt. You know, she was you know all in on this uh, on this fling, and now Aeneas kind of he's he's picked it up. He's building the towers. Um, and How's he dressed? He's he, he's dressed not like a Trojan. He's dressed in Tyrian purple. Ooh. He's dressing like uh, uh, like Dido dressed him. That's that right. morning, here, wear this. You look great in this, honey. Yeah, um, but he's a purple tie, really, Dido. Right? Oh yeah, trust me, trust me. So now he's. I, I think so. You know, clothes is kind of an indication of identity. That's even like he's not a Trojan anymore. He's a he's a Carthaginian. Mm. Uh, um, he's he's in with Dido, and again, the whole thing is kind of topsy turvy, right? So yeah, has he? It, it's maddening, mm-hmm. uh, at least to me as a reader. You know, has he learned nothing? You know, is he so deluded by? The, or as Otis would say. He's so emotionally needy yeah. from the loss and, of his father, and weak and crushed, and weak that he can't he, he can't be bothered to remember these things. He can't he he, he can't right. um, move forward because he's he's uh, Dido is his crutch in the moment. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. incredible. So Mercury gets there and he minces no words. He does not. I right. like this expression to mince words. Yeah, is that Shakespearean in origin? It wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't be surprised either. Some one of our listeners out there will look this up for us and let us know. And uh, we will be filled with uh, overwhelming but very temporary gratitude. Exactly right. I'm sure. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> to mince words, you know, you can mince onions. Yeah. I guess it's to take the knife's edge that we've been talking about and chop it up very finely. Chop it up very finely. Mercury doesn't do that. He, um, what's the opposite of mincing words? He just flings the whole salad at him. Yes, there right. you go. <laughs> he rough cuts his words. He throws the whole salad in his face. He does, right. And it is, it's, it's quite blunt here. Yep. Um, um, why don't I read, shall I read Lombardo's translation? Yeah, it's here? a little bit of a hey jerk face kind of, right? Continuin wadit tu nunc artaganis altai. What does Lombardo say? Well, I love that Mercury doesn't doesn't come down, he doesn't introduce himself, right. he doesn't say, 
oh Aeneas, you know, prince of the Trojans. He yes, just he God goes, is born. Exactly. So it's like, hey, hey, you. Right. Right. He says, Are you of all people laying the foundations of lofty Carthage and building a beautiful city for a woman? Yes. Let's pause there a second. Yeah. So for a woman, this is Lombardo's translation of the adjective uxorius. Yeah. Which means, you know, of or relating to a wife. Yeah. Uxorius. This is a brilliant translation because um, for a woman, you know, is a, a prepositional phrase mm-hmm. uh, connoting purpose. And uh, the mark of a good translator, in my estimation, is that you don't slavishly uh, follow the part of speech from one language to the next. Yeah. He didn't say, you know, try to describe Aeneas as, uh, you know, wifely or something like that. He really captures the meaning. You're doing this uxorious for a woman. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. You and want to- Notice that, that Exorius is um, between um, Pulcrum and Orbum as well. That's brilliant as well. The in, city. in the middle of the beautiful city, we have a man doing the will of his wife exclusively, which is not a bad thing in itself. Maybe even in Roman culture, it's a bad thing when you are the leader of a civilization. Yes, exactly. And the woman to whom you're, quote, married uh, is the leader of another civilization. Right, exactly. So if, if Aeneas had been doing this for his proper wife, correct, and properly recognized by public ritual, this would not be a problem. Exactly, right. well said. Yep. Um, Lombardo's translation goes on. Uh, uh, Mercury says, What about your own realm, your own affairs? The ruler of the gods and of all the universe has sent me down to you from bright Olympus, bearing his message through rushing winds. What are you thinking of wasting your time in Libya? If your own glory means nothing to you, Think of the inheritance you owe to Ascanius, a kingdom in Italy in the soil of Rome. So yes. again, once again, it's the same prophecy. Correct. But he's kind of, it's like, it reminds me of, he's like Mo with Curly, kind of, you know, slapping him. That's like, right. Hey, what's, what's wrong with you? Exactly. Knucklehead. Wake right? up. Wake up. Right. right. Did you hear that Tony Dow died? Oh, uh, Wally Cleaver. Yes, but guess what? What? He didn't die. It was a false report? Yes. What in the world? Yes. Okay. I, I When you mentioned... Um, when you mentioned the Three Stooges, I yeah. thought of television from that era, <laughs> that and my mind immediately went to Tony Dow from Leave It to Beaver, right? And uh, so an announcement came out yesterday, and I loved that show as a kid. It's yeah. a funny, funny show. Some, there's some subtle humor in there. Yeah. I, I know that people tear it apart for various social reasons, but there's also some subtle humor in there. Sure, certainly. Yeah. And um, so they, re- they released a statement. One of his managers, uh, our beloved Tony Dow, has died, and in the evening they said, False alarm. He's not dead. He's not, is he on his deathbed? Yes. Oh, he's, he is. Okay. He's in hospice care in, oh. in the last stages of life. So it was just a mistake that was quickly retracted. Yeah. Uh, but I felt, you know, really bad for the family. That's That's got to be rough. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. So now can I, the, the key is, can I connect this to... That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if I can. Let's see. Eddie Haskell. Yes. Right? Um Aeneas is behaving like Eddie Haskell, you know, the irresponsible, wisecracking neighbor. Right. Is that going to work? It's it, it's, it's a, a stretch, stretch, but, but I'll, I'll I'll buy it. Should we ask Michigan to to, uh, <laughs> to cut this out, or should we just leave it in? Let's as, leave it in as one of my failures. Let's leave it in, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. So Ascanius. Ascanius, right? Yes. Mercury doesn't mention Anchises; he's dead. But he says, "Hey, you have other Pietas. You have Pietas to your son, and you're, if you don't care about finding Rome, founding Rome, fine." But what about your boy? What's your boy? He's yeah. got to inherit your work. So snap out of it. Shape yeah. up. Snap out of it. Right. And so um, I, I, Aeneas does kind of, um, but again, he doesn't. Um, here he's kind of he, he's a little bit, you know, pulled from his stupor. But he doesn't go to Dido and say, "Hey, listen, 
um, Mercury, the gods, have, have told me this. In fact, they've told me this many times, and right. this is why I can't stay. No, not immediately. Not immediately, no. Um, and when he does confront her, it's very lackluster. It, it's cold. Namby-pamby. Yep, yep. He does take some action, though. He does. And uh, so this gets us on to about line 280, mm-hmm. right? Maybe we should wrap it up with this. What do you think? Let's do that, yeah. Okay. Why don't you read uh, just the first line of the Latin there, okay. and then I'll give you Lombardo's translation. All right. At where I ne as aspectab mutuit amens. Amens. Yeah. All right. Out of his mind. Of his insane. Mind. Yeah. Um, and he has stood there amazed, uh, choking with fear. I'm, I'm guessing the Lombardo is amazed. Is yes. It's not bad. It's a little weak, isn't it, though? Well, yeah. it's it, the word itself is strong, but it isn't maybe entirely accurate. Amens means, you know, shocked out of recognition. So yeah. okay. maybe amazed is okay. Right. Right. Not not his best moment, right? But I mean, he has so many of them that I think we've diluted our, uh, the word "amazed" in a way that's and like awesome too. You're right, right? I think those words that in, donut in, was amazing in their in their core right. their core usage is is much bigger than we tended. Was the donut really amazing? I mean, was it awesome. You expected a donut, right? <laughs> There's not a lot of variety, perhaps. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, maybe some maple bacon drizzle would make it amazing. amazing? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, Aeneas stood there amazed, choking with fear. He bristled all over, speechless, astounded. And he burned with desire to leave that sweet land in awe of the commandment from the gods above. But what should he do? What can he say to the queen in her passion? How will he choose his opening words? His mind ranges all over, darting this way and that. As he weighs his options, this seems the best choice. See, but it isn't. It is. The, the, the best choice <laughs> that he's going to give us, this is not the best choice. This is the coward's way this out. A terrible idea. So what does he do? He calls his captains, Menestheus, uh, Sergestus, and brave Serestus, and he orders them to prepare the fleet for silent running. Silent running? It's like, we're out of here. (laughs) Here's the the keys. Crawl out to the parking lot. Open the door. Crawl in. Keep it low. And then, you know, put it in first gear and have the other guys just push it out of the parking lot, out into the street. Maybe Dido, who's sitting in the booth by the window, you know, with a cup of coffee, maybe she won't notice. She won't notice. Right, exactly. This is terrible. Terrible idea. Yeah, kind of put the the, the motor for kind of uh, no wake. Right. right. Just kind of be a troll out of the, <laughs> out of the harbor. Um, she says, prepare the fleet for silent running. Get the men to the shore and get the gear in order, but conceal the reason for this change of plans. We just, you know, we had to just go out. We wanted to catch some fish. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to sail away to Italy. <laughs> no. We're just going to troll in the harbor a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. You know, get the, uh, the, the wacky noodles and the arm swim rings. We're just going to take a dip. Take a dip. No, nothing to worry about. He says, meanwhile, he explains that since good Dido knows nothing and would never dream that a love so strong could ever be destroyed, he himself will find a way to approach her, the proper occasion to break the news to her gently. Break the news so to her gently. Get ready. Let's, you know, just uh, um, leave. Yeah. Right. And, but this is stupid. And, and I'll think of something to say. It's just not going to work. No, break the news to her gently. How can you break the news uh, to someone gently about something so terrible? Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's awful. And um, But we're going to have to save that kind of that, the awfulness for the yes. next episode. Well, what about uh, the captains, though? Just the very last bit of it. The captains, this would be the three guys that you mentioned, Menestheus, Sergestus, and Brave Serestus. Yeah. We're more than happy to fulfill his commands. Do we get a little insight here into the psychology of Aeneas's followers? Uh, are they are they kind of like, um, well, it kind of reminds me of... Um, Odysseus's men on like Circe's Island. Like, yes. Why are we hanging around? Yes, but I would say that the subordinate characters are better developed in Virgil than in Homer. Oh, agreed. Because Odysseus is the really, really the only guy that matters. Maybe Elpinor a little bit. Yeah. 
But we're given a little psychology of the Roman supporting crew, right? This mm-hmm. posse of eunuchs, as <laughs> Yarbus called them. That's so awesome. Uh, there I use that word again. Yeah. Right, yeah. They, uh, they want to get out of Carthage. Yeah. More than happy to fulfill his commands. Right. Speaking of getting out of Carthage, yes. it's time to wrap up this episode. Let's do this. Um, before we get out of here, you want to talk a little bit about the Moss Method? I do, okay. yeah. We're going to be running a sale. I've threatened this many times. Yes. I'm going to say it now. It begins August 15. August 15. Okay. It's a Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Nifalor. This is your back-to-school sale. Excellent. And uh, you can get 10% off Moss Method. So go to mossmethod.com, watch a lot of the free stuff. We ask you humbly. And then if you like the way that I teach Greek, if you want to learn some of the things that I've learned in the last 30 years of being a student and teacher, sign up for the course. Sounds great. So mossmethod.com. That's right. Take advantage of all the free stuff that you have there. Yep. And and dive in 10% off. That's right. So starting August 15th. Sorry, yes. Yeah, for August. now, it's $325, $325 per module. It's a massive amount of information. But what about the office hours, Jeff? You always ask me about those. The office hours, love those. I do those. So I, you're not, but you're not doing those anymore, right? No, I am. Oh, what, what are they? What's there's that no, about? There's no flanky. No, <laughs> no flunky. No. Right. It's you. It's I. And so this is a way that the students can have direct contact with you. Right. We read some Greek together every Friday at present. Friday morning, we've got uh, you know some folks from California, Australia, uh, New York. We have some folks from Ireland t- taking um, Latin classes, South Africa taking Latin. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hong Kong, you name it. Fantastic. Uh, Vancouver. We get together and we try to have a little bit of a uh, satellicium, that is a, a companionship of literature, and read some Greek. Sounds like a lot of fun. It is, for sure. Whom do we need to thank here? As always, we have to thank uh, Mishka Fernando, our great engineer who puts this all together. And I'm always amazed at how quickly and cleanly she gets it. It's incredible. It's, it's amazing. We're so grateful. Uh, Scott Van Zen. Yep. The combination of Eddie Van Halen and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Just like those two guys, Scott has three names, too. Did you notice that? <laughs> I did. I Scott did Van Zen. The yeah. guy can rip on guitar. He's, Just, a, he's amazing. He plays the guitar like he's ringing a bell. It's uh, it's really excellent. So thank you, Scott. And also thanks to Ken Tamplin right. um, of the of the Phenomenal Vocal Academy. Right. Um, he also uh, is responsible for some of the great music. And some excellent shirts. Have you seen the shirts he wears? Uh, oh, that, that guy can dress. Yeah, that, <laughs> that guy. You know, he's on camera. He's, he's dressing nicely. Yes, so thanks, guys, for contributing your music so generously. Yep. If you'd like to leave a comment or get a shout back, you want to complain about Jeff, you want to write to Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or if you want to complain to Dave, you can you can complain at Dave at adnauseum.com. Also, again, don't forget the V. That's right. Go to our website and you can check out the link that says Lurch with Merch. Mm-hmm. And you could pick up a Kwai Nokent Dokent Ad Nauseum t-shirt. Yes, very fashionable. Yes, would only... What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. Even Ken Tamplin, I think, would wear one of those. Oh, yeah. yeah well, Maybe I should ask him to. <laughs> hey, and we'd also appreciate uh, a review on whatever platform you listen to the, the podcast on. Um, that kind of raises our profile. Uh, send us a, uh, leave us a nice note. Um, if you have something um, negative to say, maybe send that privately to our, our uh, email really? addresses. Or, or you just say, no, no, put it out. Put there. it out there. Okay. We can take That's it. Right. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Exactly. Um, what about next week? Next week, um, we're going to, we're going to finish up book four. Yes. Yeah. This will be the Aeneid book four. And I think this will be um, part three, right? This, part this will three. be, it will wrap it up. The argument between Aeneas and Dido, mm-hmm. some interpretation, and of course, the final terrible tragic death of Dido herself. And Dave, you have our gustatory party shot. Yes, I do. This comes from uh, an author named Marissa Meyer and her work, Heartless. I don't know anything about this except I like the quote. Some say it is better to have eaten and lost than never to have eaten at all. 
Very nice. <laughs> I don't think this means do eat and have lost weight. Mm. I don't think that's what it means. Okay. Because that's not usually what happens to me when I eat. No, it's quite no, the opposite. So maybe it's, some say it is better to have eaten and lost, what, friends, family? Yeah, there when, you go. When you're tucking into a big plate of pork chops or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Friends and family are the last thing on your mind. Right. So if I killed the quote by overanalyzing <laughs> no, it. No, no, no. It's, it's better to be eaten and lost all that. Okay, uh, keep, go ahead. Yeah, l- lost your friends than to have never eaten that pile of, uh, of nachos in the first place. Okay, so how about you You give us the, the final gustatory parting shot and okay. we'll stop there. Some say it is better to have eaten and lost than never to have eaten at all. Thank you for listening. Thanks.